0: Welcome to the second instalment of the DLA Piper Technology Disputes podcast, Get IT Right. Over the course of this six part series, we will be providing practical advice for both technology companies and companies who do business with technology companies. We will focus on ways to safeguard projects from potential disputes, as well as later in the series, offering some thoughts on how to deal with a dispute if one should arise. The series is also accompanied by a number of related articles, which will be published on the DLAPiper.com website. Hello, I'm Simon Kenyon, a Litigation and Regulatory Partner at DLA Piper, and I also co-head DLA Piper's UK and International Technology Disputes Practices. I'm joined today by my colleague Joanna Haig, a Senior Associate in our Technology Disputes team. Both Jo and I specialise in providing legal advice regarding disputes relating to technology contracts, and we welcome you to this, the second episode in our podcast series. We are delighted to be presenting this podcast series and you will hear from us and others in DLA Piper's technology disputes team over the coming weeks. Today's episode will focus on ways to operate the contract to your advantage, including how to deal with a number of contract management issues which may arise. In the last session, I was talking to Dan Jones about how to try to avoid disputes in technology projects. And this is really building on that session to see whether there are steps that you can take, not just to avoid disputes, but also more proactively and positively in terms of keeping a technology project on track and delivering the successful outcome, whether that is a digital transformation project, an outsourcing or an ongoing managed service. In particular, we're going to consider how you can manage a technology contract so that it works to your advantage and that you avoid some of the pitfalls. Now, the first place to look should be the contract to see how it can help you do that. But often the contract is seen as difficult to navigate particularly in technology projects, as they can be very detailed and technical, several inches thick, and often with so many schedules to consider. I think some people faced with such contracts ask themselves, where do I start? So Jo, over to you, where do you start?
1: Yes, I think often large tech contracts like that can be seen as a hurdle, rather than something which can be used easily and to your benefit the old adage is that you know after negotiating and signing the contract you put it in a drawer and it's forgotten about and then eventually it's pulled out when things are starting to go wrong and when it might be too late now obviously that's an extreme example but I think you're making a good start if you've got the contract out of that drawer and if you're using it and referring to it regularly And really, it should be an important tool, not just for when things go wrong, but also in terms of maximising value from a project. And I don't think that needs to mean that it has to be used as a lever to the benefit of a customer or a supplier. But really, the structures and the processes in the contract, if you can use those properly, then they should assist with getting you to working towards a partnership, which is for mutual gain for both parties.
0: Yeah, I agree. So what would you say are the key things from a perhaps a practical perspective, that those involved in technology projects can do to get the most out of their contracts?
1: So at a high level, I'd say there are four things. I think, firstly, getting to grips with the contract so you understand it properly. Secondly, getting your communications right, then dealing with contract change properly. And then lastly, I'd say not being afraid to use the contractual tools that you have at your disposal.
0: Okay, so... Starting with the first one then, understanding what your contract says or getting to grips with your contract, it sounds a a fairly obvious thing to say, but then we've both seen situations where the bid team hands over to the contract management team and the team then managing the contract don't have the same familiarity with the contents of the contract. There's no proper handover, there's disconnect, there's siloed working, etc. So Do you have any pointers for getting to grips with the contract, particularly technology contracts, to help with that sort of inherent volume and and complexity that you've mentioned?
1: Yeah, so I think there are a number of user friendly tools that can help to translate the contract into something which you can then use on a daily basis. So effectively kind of bridging that gap between the complex legal drafting and then the reality of you using the contract on a day to day basis and the reality of active contract management. And there are a variety of ways of doing that. So for example, you can have Excel spreadsheets, which are designed to log your change requests and to automatically calculate different timescales for certain next steps. I think what can be really useful are contract guides. Often they can be in the form of a slide deck to make them more easily accessible. And really they summarise the key parts of the contract. They can often include flow charts, which show some of the kind of, the processes in in certain common scenarios like change control process or the rectification plan process and I think these can be really useful as a as a kind of easy reference point for you.
0: Yeah I'd agree none of that's a bad idea in principle having those summaries in place can be a really helpful starting point but I think being careful not to rely on them exclusively because as we know the devil is sometimes unfortunately in the detail isn't it.
1: I think that's right. I think they're really useful as a good starter and to help you get familiar with the contract and to understand, you know, what the key timings are so you don't get caught out.
0: Yeah, sure. And is there anything else you would highlight here in terms of perhaps practical tips regarding the contract?
1: Yeah, so I think it's also about ensuring that the right people have the right understanding of what the contract says and what it means and, you know, what the intention was behind the contractual terms And that shouldn't just be about the lawyers, it should also be about the commercial people on the ground, so contract managers, but also your technical people, so the SMEs on the project, you know, should be able to understand what they're working to, what the key responsibilities are, and and what the ramifications are if those responsibilities aren't met, and where they should be escalating issues. I think really it's about those responsible for the day-to-day operation of the contract needing to understand its key terms and what's expected of both parties.
0: Yeah, that's really helpful. And I I talked in the last podcast about how people and the team are so important. And that's also very relevant to communications and how well communication works once a technology contract is live. I think it's easy to forget the importance of human beings in an increasingly technological world, isn't it? And in my experience, it's more common for people to be the cause of the dispute rather than the underlying technology. Now, obviously, there are numerous layers and different types of dialogue and communication which take place within the context of a technology project with differing formality and importance attached to those communications. So what's your experience in that regard?
1: Yeah, I think you're right. I think communication is absolutely crucial to the success of any tech project. And I think the lack of or, or proper communication sits at the heart of most disputes that we've been involved with. And I think the key to to getting communications working well across the project is ensuring that the governance you have is working properly so most contracts will have a framework for governance which is set up to provide for some form of escalation between the different layers that you're just just mentioning then of governance meetings and operating that i think should help communications overall so you might have different levels of meetings so for example Senior stakeholders at a strategic level on a, some kind of oversight board, then maybe moving down to a commercial board where more kind of daily contract management issues such as change management and impacts are discussed and agreed, and then working down to perhaps technical and an, an operational working group as well. And I think ensuring that the escalation works between all of those different layers so that the issues aren't getting bogged down at the operational level and not resolved is really important. And I think quite careful thought needs to be given to who the most appropriate attendees are at those meetings. So you know, look at the contract, what does the contract say? Often that will specify who should be attending those meetings. Um, But there's no point sending people who don't have sufficient knowledge or have the authority to be able to properly air those issues and resolve them as quickly as possible. I think it's also ensuring that those meetings are regularly attended so you've got enough stakeholder participation and so there's as much continuity across the lifetime of the project as possible.
0: Yeah I'd agree I mean we've both helped clients with troubled projects where the churning representatives at what are some very key meetings and where important decisions have to be made has caused real problems it's sometimes felt as though one party or other has simply filled the spaces in the room just for the sake of filling the spaces in the room so they can't be criticised but that's actually caused more problems than it's actually resolved. What about where these meetings get a bit more heated and it's not all plain sailing? What should you be watching out for then?
1: I think there, there's sometimes a temptation that because there's been some kind of disagreement, and as you say, that it's a difficult situation, the parties just almost become less likely to record what those disagreements are. They almost take a step back and, uh, and go off the radar. And I don't think it's helpful to fall into that trap of thinking that, you know, not minuting those meetings is going to diffuse that difficult situation. Uh, And it's just likely to kick it off down the road, really. And it's likely to provide more scope for argument about what did or didn't happen at a particular meeting. So I think if there's a dispute about exactly what was said on a particular issue, the minutes should at least record what those differences were. And I think if you get into a regular habit of doing that, so for example, where you've got quite small issues then that should just become business as usual. And hopefully those situations shouldn't be as heated as you get used to that. And when there are larger issues, you've already got a way of working that the parties are used to for dealing with it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And just sort of digging into that in a bit more detail there, what kind of things should be recorded in the minutes if things are getting difficult and there are issues?
1: Well, I think they should set out you know, what the detail is of the issue in question, the actions that need to be taken to resolve the issue, who's responsible for taking those, by when they should be taken, the consequences if those actions aren't carried out. And then if you've got an ongoing situation, ideally at the next meetings, then you should have an update on progress as to what's happened in between. And really that should encourage escalation of issues without letting them fester. And it should give you the opportunity to intervene early on, take remedial action, and hopefully that means the parties have a better chance of keeping the project on track and avoiding any disputes.
0: Yeah, and if, despite best efforts, a formal dispute arises, there'll also be a good set of records evidencing what took place and when. And that's obviously key for the parties and indeed their lawyers to recall and understand what happened and to supplement witness evidence when considering how to move forward with an issue And of course, ultimately, it's helpful for a court or a tribunal in determining issues between the parties, including things like whether a party has breached its contractual obligations, in the case of termination, whether a party has lawfully terminated the contract, or whether there are any other legal principles which may apply to help resolve the dispute, be that waiver, estoppel or misrepresentation. Good, Okay. well, look. let's move on to contract change, which you mentioned as well. And that's one of the areas that can prompt some quite difficult conversations, as we know. So, how can the contract be used in that situation?
1: So, yeah, as you say, change is really a common area of tension between customers and suppliers. And it's also the area which is most commonly used to maximise revenue generation from a supplier perspective. And I think ensuring both from a customer's and a supplier's perspective that they've got a good understanding upfront of what the scope of the contract is and the provision for contingency for change, particularly in agile projects. And I think that should help in getting to a more effective process for change. There's a difference between project change and and contractual change. And I think having a good understanding of which is which is going to allow you to consistently enforce and negotiate what's contractual change and its financial implications. So where you've got a genuine contract change, then I think there needs to be clear agreement on what the financial and the other implications of that change are. And if you can recognise that at an early stage and if you can have early dialogue around what the change is and what its impact is, then that is going to be key to getting the benefits from those changes.
0: Yeah, that's a really helpful overview. And you mentioned agile contracts there or rather perhaps contracts where the delivery methodology used is agile. And with that sort of approach, as we know, it can be more difficult to understand what is change and what isn't. And the lines between the responsibilities of the parties can be more complex complex and interwoven at the start of the project, and also to be fair, can get increasingly more blurred as time goes on. So any sort of additional thoughts on that aspect?
1: Yeah, so I've had a recent experience where um, changes were happening from quite early on in an agile project. Um, They weren't being properly monitored by the supplier or by the customer for for that matter. And they were only being raised at the last minute by the supplier. There was some contingency for change within the contract, but by the time we got involved, it was well past that. And I think it makes it so much more difficult to raise those changes at the last minute once you've got a number of changes that have built up. And there's suddenly a much bigger figure that we're talking about as compared to where you know you you continually signpost and flag those changes from early on. So, you know, using the spreadsheets that we mentioned earlier right from the start, using the governance meetings to flag those changes, following the contract variation process properly, so that you can't be criticised later on down the line for not having done that. I think that's key to maximising the benefit out of the change process for both parties. And hopefully that means that you know the customer gets what it needs in terms of scope, and the supplier then gets the value for the additional work when it needs it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And where change does build up like that it can become a real blocker to progress as you say so how can you use the contract in that scenario to improve your position?
1: Yeah I think often we see a kind of stalemate in the process as you say and you get the customer who then isn't willing to agree that there's been a genuine change because of the cost impact and there are different ways around that so it might involve using the contractual processes so for example the dispute resolution procedure The DRP provisions, they're there for a reason, you know, hopefully to resolve disputes and then allow you to move on. And obviously, every dispute is different and disputes can often be lengthy, but I don't think you should be afraid to use the DRP to see if you can resolve the issue and try and move on, particularly in long running IT projects, where I think inevitably you're going to have to explore these different mechanisms for trying to keep the project on track and looking to the long term rather than just thinking about well, what's the you know immediate short term position so you know for example looking at things like expert determination and we're talking in the next series of podcasts about different drp mechanisms and what's most appropriate in a tech context and sometimes it might not be a question of using the contractual processes it might actually be you know having some formally agreed movement away from the contractual position such as having a standstill on a project to see if the parties can find a way to move forward?
0: Yeah, that's a really interesting one, isn't it? We've certainly been involved in projects where the parties have agreed to press pause and give themselves what we sometimes call an airlock, in which they then try and negotiate and agree a way forward, because the reality is the current position is untenable for both parties, and the reality is that without at least a partial standstill under the contract, the parties simply haven't got the bandwidth to cope, or they're unable to focus on how to improve the position because they're too busy fighting business as usual daily fires. And in that situation, we have helped put in place a standstill agreement to provide that airlock, but with both parties reserving any accrued rights and so on in the meantime. I think there, though, the trick is for that period of standstill to be finite and only long enough to provide a realistic time in which to get things back on track but not so long that the pressure is off completely and matters simply drift. And again, we've certainly seen examples of that in the years. So finally, let's look at the contractual tools that might be at your disposal. And just like the dispute resolution procedure, the DRP, there can be a reluctance, I think, to invoke those contractual mechanisms as well that might be available because sometimes they're seen as being too onerous and that leads to a temptation just to Ignore them, or perhaps sometimes to circumvent them. So, any thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, I think really you shouldn't be afraid to use those tools at your disposal. I think often the parties can be quite idealistic that things are quickly going to get back on track, or you know it might be, and and often we do see this. You know the situation is quite complex, so often actually both parties might be partly at fault, and so they think, well, let's just leave the formal processes in the contract, and we'll just try and muddle through. And I think although it can seem quite counterintuitive to insist on your strict contractual rights when you want to try and foster a cooperative and partnering relationship. If you don't do that, then you might end up waiving those rights, and that means you might not be able to take the steps to protect your position and your interests in the future.
0: Yeah, in in long-term contracts, these contractual mechanisms relating to underperformance are actually really designed to help the parties get the contract back on track they're not really supposed to be about adversarial action at all and if compliance with the contractual procedures is insisted on from the outset and as you say applied consistently throughout this should educate both parties really as to the legal expectations that there are of them and so hopefully lead to fewer unhelpful surprises so can you give any examples of this in practice perhaps to demonstrate the point?
1: Yeah, so for example, many tech contracts will have early warning mechanisms in them for when delays start to occur. And delay is obviously, as we know, the kind of traditional hallmark of underperformance in a tech contract. And I think suppliers really need to understand what their obligations are around that mechanism, ensure the process is followed to the letter, ensure that their rights are preserved in relation to, for example, claiming relief. And I think that process also really forces suppliers to become more transparent about the cost impacts of delays and that should ultimately help with more effective recovery of those costs. But I don't think that inevitably needs to lead to a dispute. The mechanism is in place there to try and drive effective behaviours and ensure that both customers and suppliers are living up to expectations, provides a means for them to nip issues in the bud really quickly through mitigation measures on both sides and I think if delays are dealt with early on, if they're tracked in terms of impact and fault, then that should make it much easier to unpick that rather than you know, not addressing the issue, leaving it until the delay has all merged into one kind of big cumulative delay where it's then more of an issue. And it's much harder then to identify what the cause is and what the impact is of individual delays.
0: Yeah, and I'm a lawyer who's going to go out on a limb here, but the contract may therefore not necessarily provide all the answers. You can find ways to work both with it and around it if you need to. But if you're going to do that, then you need to do it properly and clearly so that you know what you're doing. And if you don't, you can obviously make matters worse rather than better.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think some of these processes that we've just been talking about, they can be seen as quite adversarial, as you say, and there are different ways around that. So you can soften that by, for example, using without prejudice conversations alongside those formal notices. And you might have that in parallel, where you've got a kind of twin track approach with your formal open correspondence and then notices being sent. And at the same time, you've got without prejudice correspondence, or it might just be that you have, you know, without prejudice discussions. Or it might be that you press pause. And as we were saying earlier, you have a standstill, and then you get into your without prejudice conversations. But either way, that should really give you the opportunity to have a full and frank discussion to see if you can find a way forward. But the the key is, as you were saying, is really by ensuring you do that by also preserving your rights on an open basis. So you're using your contractual rights, you're following the contract to the letter to preserve those, but you're also allowing the without prejudice conversation to find a way around the problem and to see if you can find a way forward to the benefit of both parties.
0: Yeah, that's an excellent summary. Thanks for that, Joe. I think we're going to conclude there. I think that wraps it up for the second episode of the DLA Piper Technology Disputes podcast, Get IT Right. We hope you enjoyed it and found it useful. Please look out for the article which accompanies this episode, which will shortly be available on the DLAPiper.com website. Also, look out for episode three, which will be available in a few weeks' time, when I'll be joined by my colleague Joe Cater to discuss the importance of being prepared for potential restrictions which may apply to claims which might be made under a technology contract. Thank you for listening.